0: welcome to the ignite physio podcast this podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and career We explore professional issues with a fresh lens and delve into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 37, and I'm Andrew.
1: And I'm Maxie. And today we are doing part two of Common Challenges with Jeff and with Simon. And I know that uh, I really appreciated their clinical experience, but also their experience because both of them developed. We're a part of that working group that developed it. So they're bringing just a really rich background, but also the the evolution of and and putting it into practice uh, perspective.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. Let's let's dive
2: in.
1: What I'm also hearing is that as physical therapists, we're and as you said, you know, Jeff, this is a the DT, DTPR is an opportunity almost for physical therapists to take a leadership role, um, and to and to recognize that we are in that position, right? So we need to be very aware of the regulations. We need to be we need to be able to to, to communicate with with adjusters and, and, and with patients about that as well. That actually, I'm not really requesting this right in our minds but i think we need to make that switch in our minds Mm -hmm. because we even the language that we're using here is what we're requesting it it's like we're subservient to something It's like no this is our medical opinion
3: yeah well and 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 i think too we might say to the you know to the funder the adjuster in this case we might say listen this is a really tricky case i'm having a challenge here with this patient and i'm going to get one of my colleagues to give another opinion so that we can get this patient better faster what is it about that that you don't like period and the manager might be, well, there's a cost involved for this visit, this IMC visit. There's a cost involved. Sure, there is. And not doing it might incur three times the cost of un- unnecessary treatment.
0: I, I like that idea of uh, you know, using a question to, to further the conversation as opposed to just saying, well, no, this is the way it is. And you, know, you put your, you know, your, your stake in the ground, and I'm not moving, and I'm not budging. And now all of a sudden you've got two people that are now resolutely firm in their position, and now you're at a stalemate, right?
1: The physios who actually are doing that kind of case management, um, going that extra mile, really being engaged with their, their clients or their patients, but also the client, the insurer, the insurer are the ones who develop better relationships, right? Um, and so, you know, it's not every single person who walks in your door who's been in a motor vehicle accident that this is going to be necessary for um however the ones where it is necessary you have to be able to go that extra mile and and Maybe it shouldn't be perceived as an extra mile. Maybe this is just good practice, sure, sure. right? So if you are practicing well, you know, then you are going to be able to develop relationships. And and patients could see it as you advocating for them as well, sure. right? You know, so um, I think there are multiple sort of uh, roles that, you know, doing having this type of practice sort of fulfills.
2: And I think physios need to be okay with not being able to be everything to everybody or maybe you know what I don't mind working with the simple cases but the more complex ones are the ones that need this case management maybe I'm not at that point in my career where I want to be doing that or where I'm effective at doing that and you need to be able to say we need to get you to see someone who's going to be able to fulfill all of, your, all of your needs here. And be okay with doing that. It doesn't mean that it's a failure on your part as a physiotherapist that you weren't able to connect with this person or offer that person 150% of yourself that you needed to, to be effective.
3: It's, that's okay, it's not, it's not a failure. I think that's a great point. And so being able to refer your patient to someone else because they provide a care that you don't, great. And there are times when we need to do that. I do that in my practice. Um, but let's talk just a bit about what when you do send someone for an IMC, let's be clear about what happens. Because I think there's a barrier sometimes that where a, a, a therapist might think I don't want my patient to think I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to lose my patient to someone else because I actually think I'm able to treat them. I just need a little advice. So to be clear, when you send for an injury management man, uh, management consultation, it's a one visit where your patient comes back to you after. They're your patient. They, uh, it, it, not only is it not proper. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's just not proper for uh, an IMC to in any way suggest that they would treat that patient. OK, so when you get your report back and your patient back, you're going to have a list of answers to the questions you may have asked and a list of advice of what you know, the, the, this person thinks. And you now do two things. One, your patient has some information that you can help him with. And two, guess what? You just learned as a physiotherapist. I missed that. That the IMC found something that I didn't see. Oh, man. And guess what? You won't miss it again because you got that feedback. Imagine if we got to do that, not just with our tricky MVA patients, but with every patient we saw. How fast would we learn? How, how reflective would our, our practice be and how quickly would we master what we do? So from a professional um, development standpoint, why wouldn't you uh, seek that advice knowing full well that it's your patient and they're not being seen by someone else for their ongoing care unless you request it?
2: And that is great, that. I just to maybe put a bow on that comment. That is that is one of the things I enjoy most when I do make an IMC referral. Is that that feedback from my from my colleague. The that feeling like okay, they've either confirmed what I was seeing. Plus something else, or yeah, yeah. I completely missed that component of, of this recovery, and now we've got something we can sink our teeth into as far as taking that next step. It really is. It really is a good learning opportunity.
0: So, so you guys are both IMC. So, I'm wondering what you have, what you find helpful when you get a, a referral uh, to do a consult uh, from a from the practicing therapist. What what kind of things do you like to see that just help to make that uh, referral? Uh, more impactful and, and just more useful when you're actually doing that assessment.
3: Well, well, I can say that the f- the form the, the form that you would fill out to send a patient is called AB five. Okay, so it actually says on the form what's the reason for this referral? Is it definitive diagnosis or is it treatment? So it's clear you decide maybe it's both. Uh, and then so if if the form is very basically filled out with a lot of history, then. Um, I will simply go through the entire case and make just a broad uh, recommendations about what needs to go on top to bottom. Um, And, 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 you know, these, 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 you know, I, I book an hour for this time. So um, if, it can be incredibly detailed sometimes. So, but it, what's even more helpful is if, as a therapist, if you feel like, you know, I understand I've got their wrist injury under control and I know they have a knee contusion and their low back actually is not a big issue for me. I can, but I have a real problem with this neck and I'm not sure if there's concussion involved here too, or if that facial numbness that they have is actually a cranial nerve sign or not. So the referral might say could you please confirm the the cause of the f- facial symptoms and the neck pain okay so well, that's excellent then we'll simply ignore the other things that you're not concerned about and only focus on that so it's really up to the referring practitioner but the more specific question you ask the more the the more detailed answer you'll get it's up to you
2: yeah and i w- i would echo that sent- sentiment the if there's a one or two really hard Lined questions that they want an answer to and that certainly helps you narrow the focus down And that that tends to be more the case. I think now That we get again you if the documentation is Sound and it's rational and reasonable and gives you enough to go off of then the process can be very easy and straightforward or if you get a very limited referral uh information then okay i have to spend a lot more time with this patient pulling things out from them so the more information that can be provided in the referral the better
0: what about the situation where you have a new grad uh you know they're they're like you know what i've got to get an imc for this patient i literally don't know i I know there's a register i have no idea who's on that register how do you go about choosing an imc uh that's going to make sense for that patient
2: that's a really good question i (laughs) the old standby organic networks that have generated over your practice, your years in practice, but for a new grad, that would be, that would be challenging. You'd, you'd want to consider things of ease of access for your, for your patient. Is this somewhere they're going to be able to get to easily? So geography, I guess, location, 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 which is easily uh, identified on the, on the roster of IMCs. And then I think if you had an inkling as to what area of, of, practice you think this person might be needing do they need to you know is it a biomechanical issue do they need to see a Part B therapist is it more uh, perhaps something more on the psychosocial side of things should I look for somebody who maybe is a pain specialist or has a pain certificate so the referring therapist would have to do a little bit of homework as well and then availability might be the other thing like there might when actually having made made the calls or have your admin team make the calls, saying when can this person See Jeff for an IMC. Oh, not till April. Okay, that's way too long. We have to get this done sooner. So those sorts of things are those are the things I would recommend a new grad consider, or or someone who's not experienced with the DTPR uh, consider those things. Do you have anything to add to that, Jeff?
3: Well, well, just so we we, we talk about new grads, but I, I I think you know I've been in practice 21 years, and the most recent IMC I referred out for was three months ago. Um, so let's not make it seem like it's only new graduates. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Right. So so when I uh, when I decide who to send to, uh, exactly what you've said, Simon. Uh, I decide uh, here's a case where I've got a really tricky thorax, and I don't know if there's some fractured ribs here or we've got a thoracic disc. Wow, I'm going to send for some imaging, and I'm going to send to my colleague, my one of my mentors, who I know is excellent in this area, um, or I might say no like uh, like you've said about you know someone who uh, you know uh, ha- has some issues where I think pain management is a problem more than, you know, the biological management, um, then I might pick that person instead. So, you know, one of the things I tell, you know, my staff when when, when I have um, new graduates come in and, and certainly when I have students and say is, when you start your practice, it's your job to find out what community resources are around us, what Alberta health funding programs are, what exercise classes are, and also who are the therapists that are specialists in certain areas. So I don't think that's something that you should be haphazard about. It's your job to figure out who those people are. And within a year or so of being, you know, practicing in an area, maybe you moved from another country, uh, city or country, and you've had 10 years experience, but it still takes you a year to figure out who those people are. But that's part of our practice. We naturally want to do that, and we do it anyway.
0: Do you ever get pushback from patients in terms of uh, having them go for an IMC?
2: I've never had that experience. I think the, the patients, are, they, they want to get better. And if it's framed in the right way that they know that this is one step in their recovery, they have no issue with going for, a, for another consultation. Yeah.
3: yeah. Generally speaking, patients are already saying, hey, I don't know if I'm getting better. <laughs> and so when you broach that subject, they're happy to say, yeah, that'd be great. Because, you know, let's be recognized. Sometimes our patient in the back of their mind is saying, I'm not sure if this therapist has got me. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm fully confident. They seem to be missing something. Clearly, patients feel that way about us sometimes. If you acknowledge that by saying, "Let's get another opinion," you've just gained their confidence. Mm-hmm. They, if you can show someone that I know what my limits are and I know when I when I need some advice, that's actually the mark of a master, not the mark of a novice. And the mark of somebody who develops good therapeutic relationships. <laughs> well said, <Nancy. laughs> <laughs> Maxie. Um,
1: I guess you know. I don't. I don't want to go off on a tangent on. On, on this, certainly, because I'm, what I'm going to say might open up a can of worms, but uh, also considering, though, I think how we frame sending somebody for an IMC, um, and the idea that we don't necessarily want to over-medicalize, um, you know, and the multiple consultations or the multiple visits, or, you know what I mean, it's... It, it, I. I agree with and understand the resource that the IMC offers. Um, and I'm also, there's also a part of me that goes, hey, <laughs> let's make sure that we're not over-medicalizing folks as well. But, but I don't know that the IMC has been used Enough. So
3: (laughs) I think you make a good point. I think there, I think there's certainly justification for for saying, you know, here we are four weeks in. We've been seeing you three times a week. You're exhausted. You're having headaches. You're struggling. I'm struggling a bit with you, too. I think there's a uh, you know, a a reasonable way of saying let's stop treatment for a week. Let's just you need a break and we're going to get a second opinion done during that week. Okay, we'll have someone else see you, and then I'll get, I'll, I'll get you back in the week following. So you, you, you're absolutely right. You get off the carousel a little bit by giving the patient permission to just cope at home for a week without the, 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 the one-month-long rigmarole that they've been in. So, yeah, like that's a strategic decision that we would make, right, in the plan of care. I think it's one of the
2: one of the best parts of the change in 2004 was the early access so that we could identify patients that were not going to recover on a normal trajectory. The biggest downside to it I thought as well was seeing patients too early and and just bombarding them with paperwork and appointments and phone calls from adjusters and things, whereas in the old system, you know, a lot of those people would just have time to cope and figure out things on their own. And then if they were having, you know, one small issue, they would come and get that addressed, and yeah. boom, away you'd go. Whereas definitely, uh, Maxie, I'm with you. You just wonder sometimes, you know, what if this person is just, you know, go home and, and do what you like for two weeks. Here's important advice. Here's the education. Here are your warning signs to watch for. Call me if you have any questions. I can walk you through it, but we don't need to see you unless this, this, and this. And some people, they just, you can see the weight come off of them when when they do that, right? But yeah, I'm I'm heading off on your tangent, too, so I apologize. (laughs) I apologize. apologize. We'll let Andrew get us back on track, maybe. These are
0: good good topics. (laughs) So the next thing that we wanted to talk about was, uh, let's say that, you know, you're the treating therapist uh, and... uh, you know the the uh, the patient uh, uh, actually got their uh, their WAD diagnosis uh, from their doctor, and it's not consistent with what your assessment findings were. And I'm just wondering, uh, what does a therapist do in that situation?
3: Yeah, this is a very real situation. Yeah, it certainly occurs, and it's not it's not stated in the protocols how to deal with that actually. So what tends to happen is. Um, uh, The therapist who's treating the patient and who recognizes that this isn't a WAD1, this is a WAD2, or this isn't a WAD3, this is a WAD1. Um, It's your job to decide how to proceed if you know this physician and they refer you patients you might send a quick note over saying um, um, I've assessed this patient. I I have the following signs and symptoms. It would actually technically be this Um, Would you agree Uh, am I off, you know, so that's your job to determine if you've got a referral from a physician You have no idea who they are. It's an emergency room. It's uh, someone uh, Scribbled on a piece of paper and, and, and it's and you know, it's wrong then then another option would be to call the adjuster and say look here's a situation um, they've been diagnosed as a, as a WAD um, three, and they absolutely are not. Very clearly, they are only a WAD two. How would you like me to proceed? And now the adjuster can make a decision. They can actually request, if they wanted, they could request the physician to review the patient. That'd be their right. Um, they could also um, ask you to complete an AB two, and 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 use that for their decision. That would be for them to decide. Um, but as a backup also we also have the uh if we're if we're not getting anywhere on this uh, and we really think that this is important that the diagnosis is corrected then we have the imc process in fact that's really the only thing written into the protocols that allows you to change the diagnosis on the ab2 remember once an ab2 has been done there's no way of changing that diagnosis at all you can't write another one you can't argue your way out of it the only way to change that is through an IMC within the 90 days or 20 on visits or whatever. So that shouldn't be the first place I don't think we should go, right, when there's a dispute. Absolutely not. But it, it can be really important, so we have to recognize that as a backup plan if the communication fails.
2: Yeah, I think it would be no different than if a physician referred... Uh, someone to me with a with a diagnosis that I wasn't quite sure was the right one. I would start that communication back with the physician. Here's my, here's what I found today. Here's why I wonder if if we need a change of diagnosis on this. Uh, just just because it's a from a motor vehicle collision doesn't change our duty to do our duties to practice as far as communication goes with the with the physician as well. But yeah, Jeff's clearly outlined the the other options within the within the DTPR too and i think adjusters with some experience they want the primary healthcare practitioner that's actually going to see the patient the most doing the reporting anyway so practically i experience you know you'll get you'll see that there's an ab2 from the physician and then very shortly after the adjuster's contacting you saying can you fill one out with your with your and the patient's goals on it and your concerns and that sort of thing too so it um but that depends on the, the adjuster in the case, I think, as well. So.
3: Well, I think it depends on how we speak to the adjuster. If, if the AB2 is handwritten, scribbled, hard to read, and we call the adjuster and say, um, I'm not sure the diagnosis is correct. In fact, I'm sure that it isn't. Um, how would you feel about me completing an AB2 for you?
0: Hey, I just wanted to have a quick pause to introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, Soul. They're off-the-shelf, multiple insoles. And It's the brand of insoles that I recommend to my patients and have for years. The reason I recommend them is that they're heat moldable by the patient. They've got a great arch support, and they come with options to help with different foot issues. It's really easy for customers to order, and when you refer them to Sole, they get free shipping and ten percent off. Make sure to check them out at yoursole.com forward slash health professionals. That's y o u r s o l e dot forward slash health dash professionals all right back to the show
3: and they might look at the ab2 and seeing it's missing all sorts of things information from the physician and they might rightly refuse it from the physician because it's an incomplete form Mm -hmm. that's has not been an unusual situation so just communicating to the adjuster and and (laughs) giving them an option um are you happy with the ab2 you got or would you like me to complete another one right um they it's up to them but you can certainly give them that option.
0: Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, you know, that doesn't have to be a long phone call, but I think, uh, you know, being an ally uh, to them, I think goes a long way in terms of actually uh, having good relationship throughout the process with uh, treating the patient. Okay, so this is another doozy here. Uh, You know, let's say that you've got a patient that, um, whether you're treating them or they're being treated for an MVA, and now they have a second MVA while they're being treated for the first, which I mean, has happened. It's happened <laughs> I think, to I think all it's of happened us. to all. <laughs> it know, does. Everything. It does happen. Yes. And so, I mean, uh, you know, that, that can be a tricky situation. So, I'd love to get some uh, insight on that.
2: Well, I'll I'll take the approach that I seem to always take, and just it's communication, communication, communication. You need to be open and upfront with the with the patient, with the adjuster, with the physician, you know, anyone involved in the in the case, as far as. know these injuries have changed what was previously happening and from our perspective we the process will reset and, and restart so I don't know the legal ramifications of of that or anything I prefer to stay away from those sorts of things and focus on the on the person in front of me so and my experience has been that adjusters are either okay that's fine with that or no you need to break these out from injury one to injury two or event one event two and then that can either be quite easily done or it can be impossible to do and then you end up having to spend more time communicating with saying no we need to look at the person in front of us and we have to we, we just have to deal with it as if they fell down the stairs and had another significant injury to themselves following that first one
3: so I, I jeff what's what's your experience there exactly that and and uh, you know asking the question to the insurer, giving them the information you fill out another ab2 they've had another accident you send that in and then you contact them and say uh, uh how would you like me to proceed here hopefully you've made it clear in your ab2 that in addition to a flare-up of their pre-existing in injuries they've also ex- experienced another injury or there have been no change in their, you know, however you want to say it, whatever the truth is, you state that, and then now you've given them that information, and you ask them, how would you like me to proceed? It's up to them. We're going to treat them no matter what, so we don't have to make the, it's not our job to make the decision of, you know, which claim number to use.
0: So let's say you have, a, you know, a patient um, that, say, because, you know, let's say they're in their early 60s, and you know, they've had a wad uh, injury and um, they had pre-existing uh, neck OA, uh, or you at least suspect that, right? I mean, maybe there's not, you know, confirmation on film with that, but you know, cause I mean, a, you know, a 23 year old is gonna, you know, uh, respond differently to treatment than say, a, you know, 60 year old. And how would you go about that in terms of uh, goals, um, expectations around recovery and, um, you know, and that, and that can be management of expectations with the patient, but also with the insurer. And, I, you know, i just wondering, because I know that that can often sort of complicate uh, treatment planning.
2: I think it speaks really well to a comment Jeff made earlier about functional activities or things that you want to return to doing. And is the... If the patient is being honest and upfront with you that this is how I was before, then you start that process with your education as far as you know what I think this will be a reasonable return, and and you take it from there. I think I think to. To me, with my experience, that's, the, that's much more valuable to the patient and to the adjuster if you say, you know, patient A wants to be able to unload her dishwasher, fold clothes and vacuum all within an hour and a half because this was something she was doing pre-accident rather than restore pre-accident range of motion and pain zero out of ten now that might there you may have patients one patient that doesn't give a you know two hoots about unloading the dishwasher they want zero out of 10 pain so you may have to frame it differently and that could flip-flop you could have a 23 year old that you think is going to recover great but they end up being the The long-standing patient of yours whereas the 60 year old is used to having stiffness and soreness and they're okay Teach me how to do these things differently so that I can do what I want to do within the confines of my body now So it's it's interesting, but I'm off on another tangent there and I apologize But really I think the functional pieces are are what come in and tell me how you were before Mm -hmm. and let's let's see if that's a Reasonable way to get you get you back to
3: yeah, and I think we don't I think I observed that we don't always um, paint the picture of what the patient was like before the accident on, on our assessment because we're too busy asking the key flag questions and we're, you know, it's five Cs, okay, we, we panic a bit. But you have to paint a picture of who was this person before the accident because if they're 60 and they look frail, then you have to ask them really specifics. Um, did you did you care for yourself? Um, did you dress yourself? Were you able to grocery shop? Did you have recreation activities? And and you might end up by saying, if you're still confused of of what they were like before the accident, you might say, what are we? What are you not doing now that you normally would be doing a month ago before the accident? So we have to paint that picture, and we have to like strongly record it in our notes because. Two and a half months later, when someone says, "Well, is this person better yet?" and the patient's saying, "My neck's hurting," and you're asking, "But it was hurting before, right?" and we don't know, then you 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 darn well better have a picture painted in your chart notes. And when's a better time to get it than the very first time you see them, right? And 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 their and their memory's still clear about that. So, yeah, I mean, that's a huge challenging thing. Not just the MVA issue, but 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 you know, a requirement is to, is to return people back to their pre-existing status prior to the accident, at least. Or better, if we could. Um, and so how mu- guys, the question you ask yourself is, how much time do you spend on assessment with a patient that clearly has some pre-existing orthopedic condition issues? How much time do you spend figuring out what they were like before the accident? If it's less than three to four minutes, you're missing something.
0: So what you're saying is, you know, relying on purely a numerical rating scale of pain is not
3: enough to get that picture. Clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we're clear on yeah. that. Well, it's like saying, you know, Doc, will I be able to play piano after this? If you don't ask the question, could you play piano before? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: let's uh, talk, I mean, we, we touched on this use of language, um, uh, you know, a little earlier in the conversation. But, you know, what happens, you know, when you have the patient, um, uh, you know, that, you know, you've, you've finished that... Um, you know the the uh, through the protocol and and they still require treatment. Um, you know, I know before we jumped on this uh, podcast, I was using the language requesting an extension, and I and I wanted to bring that up again because I think that's really important in terms of the language and the, and the mindset that we're coming into our, these conversations with adjusters with. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, uh, what happens if you get pushback from an adjuster? Say, look, you know, I think uh, you know this patient needs ten more treatments, uh, you know, and they're giving you four um how do you go about that kind of situation
2: well jeff said it excellently earlier i think is that you have to have a rationale for the re reasons why you are seeing this person why you've chosen that frequency what you're trying to return the person to and again that often you cannot jam all of that into the confines of a ab4 form, and one of the biggest challenges I have is trying to circumnavigate the need for a phone call with an adjuster, supplying addendums, detailed narratives about here's what we're going to work on with the patient, and then getting back, well, that wasn't on the, you know, that wasn't on the AB4, it doesn't count, or or very occasionally, thank you for that, yes, here's, here is why you're going to be approved, um, or the no denied off to IME or or what have you for, for those cases. But I do think that if you frame it the way Jeff mentioned it was this is a treatment plan and it is a medically necessary treatment plan, then the adjuster would be hard pressed to to not approve that. And... Um, they do have their mechanisms which they can engage to to prevent things from being done. But at the at the end of the day, Jeff Jeff is right in that the language is you are you are not requesting, you are submitting a plan and you're looking for authorization. It's not you're not begging and pleading with them. Uh, but there are things that they're entitled to do as well to
3: say to say no. So. I think it's helpful that we change our viewpoint on this because we were, we've been granted. In the time that I've been a physiotherapist, we've become primary care practitioners. We were not 20 years ago. We weren't called that, and we didn't function that way, but now we are. The government calls us that, right? So um, it's our responsibility to tell insurers what is medically necessary in their patients for their patients. And, uh, and so, you know, the, I think the key thing in the is, is, again, knowing your, so you've got your DTPR guideline printed off in your binder, and, and then you've got the AAIB regulation you need too. You really should have that also, and it's long and long-winded, but it, the, key, the key thing that, that defines w- whether or not we're requesting the insurer fund treatment, or whether we're telling the insurer what the patient needs is two words in the AAIB regulation. And it basically says that the insurer is responsible to pay for treatment that is deemed medically necessary. Two words. The question is who determines that? Well, 25 years ago, only a doctor could determine that. All right? But now we've become primary care practitioners okay so we can determine that so we have to tell our patients uh, and 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 the funders too this is what's medically necessary and uh, and so the insurer like simon said the insurer absolutely has the right to say you haven't sold this case to me well enough you haven't explained to me you've told me that they've been treated 60 times and that your plan is to do 20 more of the same treatment okay and so so denied okay so yeah so they have the right to so then what the, the mechanism by which they do that is they they have to have an opinion from someone else saying no no they don't need treatment anymore some medical provider a doctor a physiotherapist has to say to the insurer i've examined this patient they don't need treatment okay and so you know and i think this is where like uh, practicing our communication skills when an adjuster says well you're requesting eight more sessions i don't understand why we need to practice the dialogue of saying no i'm not requesting eight more sessions i'm explaining that that's what's medically necessary if if you have another opinion by all means, share it with me. Do you have another medical opinion? Would you like to request? one? you're more than happy to. If you'd like this patient to go to their doctor and ask their doctor if they need treatment, by all means. This is us being cooperative in the process, not arguing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's be clear, too, about what the regulations state. And, uh, and then, furthermore, to say that, you know, if you can't... If you couldn't spend five minutes defending why they need eight more treatments on the phone with a, with a, let's just say they were an angry upset adjuster. If you can't justify it, you shouldn't be asking it.
0: So the onus is on us to... Yeah.
3: I think so, yeah. yeah.
1: With, uh, you know, that kind of responsibility, you have to be able to, what's the Spider-Man, you know,
3: with you have great be, power comes, comes great, great responsibility,
1: responsibility right, guess, right? <laughs> you know like we, we've been truly we've been given this power we need to step into a leadership role and and a leadership role is that right so and I think in the reciprocity of that we will be respected as that primary care provider it won't just be a title but we'll assume it and we'll embrace it right so I think I think it's important for the profession
0: Absolutely. I mean, that sort of goes into a whole different conversation. Yeah, it does. Yeah. No tangents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Within the healthcare system, but I think it's a it's a great example of where we can actually step up a little bit and say, you know what, you know, if the, if there was a higher bar that we were setting as a profession in terms of our interactions with insurers and and the quality of evidence that we're providing in terms of our treatment recommendations and treatment planning, that you know, insurers are going to know that and they're going to see that difference, right? And I think that uh, that can make a huge difference in terms of further strides, uh, you know, within leadership, uh, within the medical system as a whole, right? So I think, you no, know, I think that's a great point. Possibly another podcast topic
3: all right. <laughs> yeah, um, how, how to change a treatment plan effectively that's a great yeah, topic yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and <laughs> communicate it yeah. in, in a way that you know doesn't make you feel like you've failed right yeah exactly yeah
0: yeah was there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about with regards to the uh, role of the imc because i know we've you know, we've chatted a little bit about you know how it's underutilized um anything that you'd like to share from um your experiences whether that's a you know uh you know particular case around um when, either when you've requested an imc or when you've completed one uh where you where you felt like there was really uh something uh that you'd like to share with the audience
2: i'd just i would just jump in on that one and and reiterate that it's a learning process and an educational opportunity for the patient and and the person making the referral that that as jeff said is not available in a lot of other Um, avenues for for us and that can that can be for a novice therapist to someone with with experience who's worried about their own biases and only seeing the same things with people and I think don't be afraid of using using it you when you need that second opinion or you want that second opinion Go ahead and ask for it, and, and get it, and don't be afraid of pushback from the patient, or pushback from the insurer, or from thinking that you're not that you don't know enough, or you don't you're not doing your job. I think if we could all have that ability to grab someone in the next cubicle over and say, just can you just spend 10 minutes with this patient and tell me what I'm missing, we would take it and 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 as jeffs again said we would learn a lot and that reflective practice component lifelong learning of our of the, of our profession would just grow by leaps and bounds that way as well and particularly for people who are in isolation if they're practicing on their own or they're the only therapist in their clinic in the evening or something like that it can be it could be a very useful resource i
3: think I've got, no, I think we've talked a lot. Yeah, yeah, no. It's I not think I've, <laughs> a, I've got nothing to add.
0: Awesome. Well, I mean, this has been a great conversation. I mean, I, I feel like we've, uh, as Jeff said, we've covered a lot of ground here. I think, uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, how to handle some of these tricky cases, whether it's uh, the IMC and, and the valuable role that that can play. But, um, you know, I think what, you know, from these episodes that we've done around the DTPR, I think, you know, I think we can agree that the regulation is there to guide um, treatment planning and put a framework in place. But there's obviously a fair amount of discretion as clinicians that we have. And I think that, uh, you know, recognizing that not everything is black and white in these situations. And um, b- But I think the other big takeaway is make sure you know Regulations, so that you're not just flying in blind. Because uh, a, you're, you're going to be less effective for your patients, but b, you're also going to uh, be less effective in your communication with the insurers. I don't know if there's any other sort of key takeaways. Just that it's our responsibility, yeah.
1: professionally, it's our responsibility to know the regulations.
2: Yeah. yeah, they are rules that govern your practice, so you should you should know them just as well as you know your standards of practice. Yeah, strong Plus rules for Legislation,
1: right. so it's it's not just you know. Small P policy, it's big P
0: policy. Well, thanks, guys, for being on the show. I think this is fantastic. I think this is going to be, uh, I think people are going to, you know, really love this content and find it useful in their practice. So thanks again. Okay, Glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Uh, Now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on uh, iTunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to to get your feedback.
1: And if you want to check out the show notes uh, from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts.
0: And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignite And we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All
1: right. Bye bye.